Hey everyone, and welcome to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and real autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week, we're dissecting Rizzolian Isles Season 2, Episode 9, titled Gone Daddy Gone. We're going to be talking a lot about medical terminology that we use in the morgue and really in like our everyday lives at this point, and about bite mark impressions, so let's get into it. So this episode opens on a young girl being chased, and she gets in her car, we think she's safe, but then the assailant breaks the window of the car and we see her get dragged out, and then the credits roll. Then we see Rizzoli going to Isles' house, and Rizzoli is ready to go for a run that Isles forgot about. Relatable. I often forget about running, because I don't like it, even though I keep doing it. <laughs> I keep signing up for races. I was going to say, you keep training for all these marathons. <laughs> Runner, I haven't done a marathon. I've done two half marathons, but people who run understand what I'm saying. <laughs> we, we love and hate it. <laughs> So Isles had an overnight guest. They were playing chess, not doing anything sexy. (laughs) Unless you think chess is sexy, guys. Maybe it is. You do you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You do you. Everybody has their hobbies. I wish I was good at chess. I'm just not. The guest happens to be Rizzoli's brother. Cue the drama. Just then, before Rizzoli can ask too many questions, she gets a call about a possible homicide and tells Isles that they have to go. Isles then immediately gets the same exact call. So they go to the scene and Rizzoli is telling Isles not to hook up with her brother. And Isles says that she is attracted to his mind, but also explains that he has, and I quote, exquisite long bones. And Jess, I feel like they always make the Emmys in these shows sound super creepy as and like as if people who work in the field use medical terms in their everyday life, just like a casual conversation. It's almost like the writers just have this overall assumption that doctors and pathologists and medical people don't know how to socialize normally. Right. And they're all like reclusive. They think we're all (laughs) creepy. We don't know how to socialize outside of the morgue. Like we don't know how to talk to living people. I have never complimented a living person on their femurs or tibia like Isles does. But should should we start? Is that something we should do? Is that something? Are, are they trying to tell me something? This is what's expected of me when I tell people I work in forensics and I work in a morgue doing autopsies. I should compliment their bones. Yeah. Yeah. It very much reminded me of Temperance Brennan in Bones. It just like never knows how to interact with people and always talks to living people as if like there's something she's studying. Yeah. And it just very much gave me that vibe and I just realized it's a trope in these shows every and every show does it too it's not like oh this show does it but that show doesn't it's every single show they're like she's a doctor and she's smart and we're gonna let you know it every second that she's on the screen we're gonna remind you just in case you forgot she went to medical school and she knows all of these medical terms she uses them in casual conversation It's like, oh my god, it's like um, in Legally Blonde, where she was like, I use legal jargon in my everyday conversations. (laughs) (laughs) I object! (laughs) Same Elwoods. Same. That was good. That was a good reference. See, now Elwoods has convinced me to start using medical jargon in my everyday life. I use medical jargon in my everyday life. Nice long bones. (laughs) (laughs) So... She then also starts talking about how male and female muscles are identical, and what varies is the size of the male skeletal frame, and that men generally have less body fat than women do. She also, like, burns this other, like, she's, like, roasting this guy who's like, women can't be strong, and so she, that's why she's explaining this, and I loved that part. 
Because Jess and I know from lifting bodies every day, we're pretty strong. We're very strong. We're super strong. One of the doctors the other day, we were lifting a body, like trying to flip him on his back. And he was like, no, wait for me. And I'm like, we got it. Yeah. And he, he was like on the other side of the morgue. And he's like, oh, wow. <laughs> he saw us do it. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you had your Wheaties today. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Every day. So anyway, they get to the scene, which is the car that we saw from the opening. The detective that's at the scene said that the neighborhood thieves had stripped the car clean while it sat abandoned, but no one called about all the blood inside until about an hour ago. And there's blood spatter all over the windshield. And for all my friends and people out there, you know, it's spatter, not splatter. There is no L. Splatter is a fun word to say, but it's not the correct term. And there is actually a trick to forensically photographing a car when it's outside. On your camera, if you have a central polarizing lens, this eliminates any outside glare from the sun and the clouds so you can clearly see what is inside the car. And we actually use one of these lenses in the morgue when we do photographs because it helps eliminate any shine when we do flash photography for organ photos or like anything inside the body cavity that we need to photograph. And it's really cool. I know Jess brought that idea from a training that she did on forensic photography and it's been so helpful in the morgue. It's awesome. Yeah, there's like a clear difference from before we had the lens and then now that we we're using the lens on our everyday camera, like there is a clear difference in how much glare is actually being eliminated. It is super cool to see. So Isles makes note that there are two distinctive patterns of arterial spray indicating that the victim's carotids were both severed. So friendly reminder, carotid arteries are in your neck. They supply blood to your head. And arterial spray is basically when there is a spurt of blood released when a major artery is severed. And yeah, like we just said, carotid arteries are the major blood vessels that provide your brain's blood supply. So you have two, one on either side of your neck. And she says whoever sat there in that seat and bled out like that is most likely dead. But they don't have a body, so they need as much evidence as they can get. And we see our first green flag here. And this one goes to the homicide detectives for wearing gloves while working at the scene, not just getting their fingerprints and DNA all over everything. Rizzoli tells an officer to ask any pawn shops who might have received items from this car for any of the thieves' information and to try and get any items that were taken from inside this car. So they find out the car belonged to a 22-year-old named Melissa Joy Black from Michigan. Her phone in Michigan was disconnected and Rizzoli notices a Boston parking tag in her car indicating that she must have moved to the area recently. She guesses that she works at the docks, so she and Isles go to the docks. Okay, wait, sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. If there was no body at this scene, why was Isles there? I was just going to say that. Because I was thinking that watching it, I was like, okay, so they don't have the body. Why do they need the medical examiner? Because like, that's what the medical examiner or the coroner at the scene has jurisdiction over is the body. Yeah, we only care about the body. Everything else is police or like crime scene techs. Right. And as you guys learned from our crossover with the lovely crime scene queens, we're not crime scene techs. We do not have the same job. They're both really cool jobs, yeah. but they're not the same. So I was wondering the same thing why she was there and like i mean we've also mentioned this like a million times medical examiners are not normally the ones to go to scenes it's like the deputy coroner or like a representative of them if there is no body there's no Mm -hmm. reason for her to be there i thought the same thing and i was like well maybe they needed her and her medical jargon brain to do the arterial Mm -hmm. spray thing and i then i thought well crime scene investigators do that there are people who know that like specifically study like blood spatter analysis so i don't know i was wondering the same thing 
these shows these shows man she has all of the jobs she is every single forensic specialty out there they have one forensic person and it's her (laughs) so i think that them going to the docks is a possible red flag because if anything isles should stay at the scene to investigate the bloody car even though there's no body so she might not even need to be there to begin with but regardless she should not be the one going to interrogate people with rizzoli that's rizzoli's job but Like we've said before, and like we just said now, doctors usually don't go to scene in our office. So they get to the docks and question this, like, really creepy, scummy boss. Like, all they made all the guys in this episode so scummy and not even, like, subtle about it. All of these guys were disgusting. They were, like, the stereotypical, like, 1920s catcalling women on the street like it's nothing. It was really just, like, cringy the whole time. And then even... When they were getting catcalled, Isles was being her medical jargon self, and they got catcalled as they were walking to the docks, and Rizzoli said some snarky comment, which is something I would do, back at the catcaller, and she's, (laughs) Isles is like, oh, it's just because of our pheromones, and like, men like somebody who looks fertile, and it's our breast size, and this, and I'm like, what? Stop being weird. Just be upset that you got catcalled. (laughs) Be a normal human. Don't remind me that you're a doctor. (laughs) Stop justifying him catcalling you with medical jargon. It's still not right. (laughs) It's still creepy. They be responsible for their actions. They have the audacity. They have the audacity. That's all you need to say. You don't need medical jargon. Anyway, this creepy boss is their union rep at the dock, and they ask him about Melissa Joy Black. He doesn't know her, but one of the workers does, and the worker says that she walked off the dock halfway through her shift yesterday. Suddenly, there's a commotion outside, and someone's yelling to call 911. So Rizzoli and Isles obviously rush out and see a group crowded around the water's edge where they see Melissa's body tied to the pier. She has an ice pick through her chest. The officer and other investigators from the scene at the car now come to this scene to investigate the body, which they, like, remove from the ties and lay on a tarp on the ground. Isles removes the ice pick from the body's chest, and the investigator notes that this looks like Patty Doyle's signature. So, once again, inside the morgue, coming at you in the middle of a random episode with some heavy drama that we don't understand because we just watch random episodes. We don't watch them in order. We just watch random episodes of every single show out there. So anyway, this is fun. We're trying to piece together what's going on. I'm like, who is Patty Doyle and why do we hate him? Yeah, damn, Patty Doyle. I have no idea who you are. MO or modus operandi or signature is a personal mark or imprint left by the offender. So apparently Patty Doyle's signature was killing people with ice picks. So the MO is what the offender must do in order to commit the crime. The signature is not required to commit the crime, but it serves as like an emotional or psychological need of the offender. Isle says she won't be the one investigating this death and that she will call another doctor, Dr. Pike, from a separate office because she has some kind of connection to the killer. He is her biological father. Dun, dun, dun. But I just also want to note if she's she's trying to step down from this case, but she also she just took the weapon. She's got her hand all over this weapon. She took it out of the body. She's been touching this body. And then she's like, I can't do this. She's already involved. She is so involved. And she's just like, you shouldn't have removed the weapon. You should have just left it there and been like, all right, I'm I'm out. Peace. And she knew she assumed that this Patty Doyle was involved as soon as she saw the body. Her and like Rizzoli looked at each other. Like they knew. They knew. And so she... She still tampered with the body before the medical examiner that's going to be working the case did. 
don't do that. That's not good. So Rizzoli tries to convince her not to step down from the case, but Isles doesn't want to mess up the chances to prosecute this man for murder, even though she kind of already tampered with things. But yeah, I feel like they definitely should have left the body as is for the medical examiner that was going to be working the case to see. You can take that out at the morgue. Right, and then they could have taken like the photographs of it while it was still in there and then photographs when they removed it, which none of them did. They just removed it and were like, I, I don't want to be involved anymore. I know. Dramatically drops the ice pick on the ground. I can't do this. Throws it away. Throws it into the ocean. Like, I don't want to be involved. Yeets. <laughs> just yeets it out of there. So then the CFO of the company comes down and asks if the body can be covered because this is upsetting. So the body is removed in a body bag. Green flag, because we never see body bags in these shows for some reason, but we finally see it. And the detective and Rizzoli interrogate the CFO. Rizzoli questions why some people think that the mob runs the Mass Shore Company, but the CFO claims that they have turned the company around since taking over. They ask the CFO if he knows anything about Patty Doyle because they think he may be involved in this murder. The CFO says that the corporation has no ties to the mob, but they do. And he points to the dock workers as he says they, in quotes. Rizzoli asks him for all the surveillance videos from the docks, and the detective says that the longshoremen won't talk and that the CFO might be right. Then we see Dr. Pike setting up for his autopsy for Melissa. Isles is in the room with Rizzoli, and if she's worried about a defense attorney finding out about her connection, shouldn't she, like, not be in the room, like, at all? She's so... She's, like... She's so worried about not being involved, yet she is so involved. She's so dramatic. She's like, I can't be involved, but I have to watch. And this is definitely a red flag during an autopsy, especially a high-profile case like this, where detectives are attending the autopsy. Anyone in that autopsy room can be and would be subpoenaed. However, there are no detectives besides Rizzoli in this room, so... I doubt that she would turn in aisles and like write her name on anything. But I mean, for the cases that we work, when there are detectives, they write down like their notes, they write down names of people working on the case and their report. And we have interns that rotate in and out every semester. So we don't allow them in for like the high profile homicide cases because we don't want them being subpoenaed because they're only there for a short period of time. Like we'd rather just not have them in. And then if anything were to happen, like we would be subpoenaed, which has never happened i know the one autopsy tech that's been working there for probably over 10 years he's only been subpoenaed once and it was just to say like yeah the doctor was there yeah i was just gonna say knock on wood because i do not knock on wood i never want to go to court i don't want to go to court (laughs) i'm scared but dr pike is setting up his tools which i think is a green flag as autopsy techs this would kind of be our job we set up all the tools for our doctors and some of them can be a little particular about their setup and what tools they like to use but his, he has this tray of tools, and it really just looks like a bunch of hemostats from, like, the split second I saw. I and saw he had that. about eight hemostats on there. So, like, a hemostat is basically a clamp. It's not quite a forcep. You can pinch it in, and it will stay closed. Yeah, it looks kind of like a scissor. Yeah. Like, the handle of a scissor, but, like, it clamps shut, and it's not sharp like a scissor. It's got, like, grips on it, so you can... Yeah. yeah. You do not need eight hemostats for one case. You maybe need one, maybe two. He had like, he had two trays. Two trays, of, yeah. Like, <laughs> things that just looked like hemostats. Also, in this like, this whole like five minutes of a scene, there's a whole bunch happening. There are no autopsy techs working in their morgue. It's just the doctor. And I want our representation. I just want to be seen. I've said this since episode two. 
I just, I, we do a lot of work in there. We do a lot. A lot that a lot goes unseen. Yeah. Until now, inside the morgue. <laughs> <laughs> we have very important jobs. We help the doctor. Like, you wouldn't even understand. And I just want these shows to give us the recognition that we deserve. And half of them don't. <laughs> I'll say it again. Hollywood, reach out to us. I'll do anything for you. Play a dead body. I'll give you the inside scoop of Inside the Morgue. Yes. Anyway, he starts his findings and starts like his, I guess, like overall dictation. So he says that she's a well-developed Caucasian female, 22 years old, and she has an incised gaping wound across her neck. So an incised wound or a slash is a very clean, straight cut. And she was nearly decapitated when her throat was cut and that the ice pick was kind of unnecessary because she probably would have bled out in under a minute from the incised wound. This is actually true. So your carotids, they're about like an inch and a half below the surface of your skin. And if they are severed, you can go unconscious very quickly and probably die within a few seconds, like five to 15 seconds. I'm feeling my carotids, like, as you're talking. You can you can see me on video. I'm, like, checking my pulse in them. Like, yeah, if you check your pulse. Where you go to check your pulse, that's basically where your carotids are. And there is another red flag here because they have the ice pick in a plastic evidence bag, and you definitely would not put a sharp object in a plastic bag because it could very much perforate the bag, and then yeah. everything is corrupted. So they they make these evidence tubes. They're like plastic tube bins almost. You can put your sharps like knives or needles in there and there's no chance of like it poking you because it's not a plastic bag. It's actual like solid plastic tube. Yeah, I've used those if like syringes were found yeah. on a decedent for like a possible drug case. Yeah. I remember, I don't know if you were working yet. There was one time this guy came in and he had like a, a whole ass knife underneath. Like when we flipped him over to his back, there was just a knife laying there. I don't know like how nobody saw that when they were putting them in the body bag, but we had to put that in an evidence tube. Wow. That was like the most random thing I've ever seen. So anyway, they should have put the ice pick in a tube, not a bag. There is another detective that was able to get Melissa's address and they invite Rizzoli to go with him to go check it out. They go to her home and they find her sister and her father who is in a hospital bed on a ventilator. The sister is upset and says that she's glad her father isn't aware of anything because she doesn't know how she'd tell him about Melissa. He had a head injury six months ago. He was also a longshoreman and the doctors say that he probably won't recover from that injury. The sister can't think of anyone who would want to harm Melissa. They ask her about Doyle and she doesn't recognize the name. She also wasn't aware that her sister was working at the docks. And her sister says she probably got a job there because the union said that her dad's injury was his fault because he was drinking on the job. So she got the job at the docks and went by MJ there to kind of do her own investigation. Back at the office, Dr. Pike tells Isles that he discovered a micro SD card in the stomach contents of Melissa. Also another random find. Haven't had that happen to me. That's honestly one of the most frequently asked questions I get sometimes is if I found weird things in people's stomach. And I, I haven't. I never have. And I wonder if it's because of these shows that are constantly like, we found this in her stomach. <laughs> and like, Well, at the Mutter Museum, they have that whole 
shelf display of like things that people have swallowed that's right they have crazy there's like safety pins in there there's like buttons like little toys a bunch of safety pins you're right yeah oh my god yeah the safety pin drawer it's like drawers of random things people have swallowed and the the safety pin ones freak me out because that just has to hurt so bad going down it just like hurts my soul yeah so the sd card probably from a camera it says she must have swallowed it right before she died Iles tells him that it's not their job to assume what is on it and to bring it up to homicide detectives. Iles goes back home to play chess with Rizzoli's brother, and they're having a very flirty game. Mm-hmm. Again, you do you. But then suddenly a man with a gun breaks in, and he's carrying another man screaming that they need a doctor. The injured man is Patty Doyle, the one that everyone's been obsessed dun, with dun, this dun. entire time. He had a bullet that fractured his clavicle, and Doyle said that he needed to be stitched up right away. Then Isle said that it's more complicated than that because of the tissue damage and other injuries, and the man with a gun tells her to just do it, or he'll shoot Rizzoli's brother. Isle said that she's going to need the brother's help, and that the guy should stop pointing the gun at him. The man obeys, and the brother, Tommy, he goes to help. Isle says that the exit wound is large, which is correct. Entrance wounds are generally smaller and more regular than an exit wound, which are larger because the projectile is moving around through the body and eventually slows down and explodes within the tissue and the surrounding muscle, so that's why your exit wounds are bigger, because it's exploding through everything. Doyle claims that he didn't kill the woman at the docks. Back at the office, they're looking at the surveillance footage, and they don't see anyone following Melissa. They're trying to take a look at the SD card, but the stomach acid damaged it. You can see her running, but you can't see who's chasing her. They did a background check on Melissa's father. Before his accident, he was a dock worker with no criminal record and no ties to Doyle. They also got his accident report and the hospital lab records, and it says that his BAC, blood alcohol content, was 0.1. So it does look like he was drinking on the job. For reference, the legal BAC limit is 0.08. So it was just over that. Rizzoli thinks that Melissa must have stumbled upon something that she wasn't supposed to see when she was investigating her father's work injury. They go to the docks to investigate, and then back at Isles' home, Doyle is recovering on her couch from the impromptu procedure she just did. Doyle starts breathing unevenly on the couch. She adjusts his pillow to help him, and she says that he needs an IV. Rizzoli, separately, she gets a call about another scene with a dead body. That body is Doyle's right-hand man. He has multiple GSWs, or gunshot wounds, and they're still counting shell casings. So it seems to be like it was an ambush and not an execution. Rizzoli thinks it looks like someone else was there, probably Doyle, who took a bullet himself, which we know because we just saw him. It's possible there was a mob for control of the docks. Dr. Pike shows up at the scene and Rizzoli asks where Isles is. He says that she was unreachable and then Rizzoli rushes out of there to go see what's happening. Back at Isles' house, we see Patty and the other man leaving, and Isles asks why he killed Melissa. He says he didn't do it because he doesn't kill women or children or anyone who doesn't deserve it. He tells her to use her science to prove that he is being framed, and then leaves to go finish what someone else started. Rizzoli shows up to see her brother and Isles tied up. Rizzoli figures out that Patty Doyle was shot and came to Isles for help and tells Isles that his right-hand man was found dead and that she thinks that someone Doyle trusted must have given him up. Back at the station, they look through Doyle's crimes, 
and they see that he never killed any women or children. He also usually wasn't as messy as Melissa's murder was. We then see Isles talking to Dr. Pike about his autopsy report of Melissa and says that there was nothing about teeth or gums, and Dr. Pike says he didn't feel the need to floss her molars because cause of death was obvious. Isles says she wants to see more on the postmortem bruising around her mouth, and the report suggests that the perpetrator applied force against the victim's mouth during the attack. It's possible that the victim may have bitten her killer, and she wants to see the body. Dr. Pike says that the body was released to the funeral home without Isles' permission. She gives him one hour to get the body back. Back in interrogation, they're questioning a dock worker who had sexually harassed Rizzoli earlier. They say he can get seven and a half years for indecent assault and battery on a police officer, and they'll press charges unless he answers their questions. He says he barely knew Melissa, but is shocked when they reveal that Richie Black was Melissa's father. He says he was a stand-up guy, and he was running to be their union rep. It looks like he was going to win, but then he had an accident. The guy who won was his competition, Ray, had a long rap sheet, and they think Melissa went undercover as a dock worker to spy on him and prove that he had something to do with her father's accident. And remember, Ray is the really creepy, the first really creepy guy that we see after the catcalling incident. So they pull up the surveillance footage again and see that Melissa wasn't the one being followed like they originally thought. She was following Ray as part of her investigation into her father's incident. Rizzoli and the detective go to question Ray at the docks. Back in the morgue, Dr. Pike was able to get Melissa's body back from the funeral home and has begun examining her teeth. And this definitely feels like a red flag because a forensic odontologist should be the one carrying out a dental exam. So forensic odontologists are specially trained in forensic dentistry, unlike forensic pathologists. I also noticed that while they were re-examining this body, that the body looked like it had a marbling effect, which is when like decomposition starts, the bacteria will travel in your in your blood vessels and you can like see it on the outside of the skin. It'll be like a greenish blackish or sometimes reddish pattern. It looks like marbling. Like when you look at like a marble countertop, it looks like marbling on the skin and it's actually really cool. We always say, I always say my least favorite stage of decomp is bloating. But if I had to pick a favorite, it'd probably be whenever we see marbling. Cause I think it's, it's really interesting to see. So I definitely give props to the makeup team for doing this. So the docs focus on the maxillary central incisors as well as the canines, and they don't see anything. The victim has an underbite, so they check the mandibular, and there they find a particle, and it appears to be skin. Cut back to Rizzoli and the other detectives at the docks in the office, and they hear a woman whimpering from Ray's office. They go into the office with their guns drawn and find Ray with an ice pick in his chest, and then they find a woman tied and gagged in the closet that they free. She said she just heard screaming while she was in the closet. And the detectives note that Ray's fingers are broken, so it looks like he was tortured before he was killed. Back at the morgue, Isles is looking at the ice pick and conducting Ray's autopsy. Rizzoli barges in and asks if she has gotten the DNA results back on the skin they found in Melissa's teeth yet. Red flag, because we know DNA doesn't come back that quick. So Isles says she thinks she knows who the killer is. There is a bite mark on Ray's arm that matches Melissa's teeth. So she thinks that the DNA results will just show that it's Ray's skin in her teeth. There is some controversy with bite mark evidence. There is no real scientific support or research into the accuracy or reliability of it. Although bite mark evidence is often introduced as being close to DNA in terms of accuracy, there is no scientific validation for the notion that a person's dentition is unique to him or her in the same way that a fingerprint or DNA are unique to an individual. And 
I thought it was interesting. We talked about this in one of my classes in grad school with forensic odontology. It's also become harder now, I think, with bite mark evidence because so many people get braces and like change their unique bite mark to be similar. Like everybody's bite mark is like more similar now because we all like try to straighten our teeth. And I thought that was something interesting, like a new point in bite mark evidence that's been brought up. So bite marks are often found at the scene of violent crimes like murders, assaults, or sexual assaults, and are difficult to accurately investigate. So part of this is because victims of violent crimes can suffer multiple injuries, and what looks like a bite mark can easily be an unrelated injury. Unlike a dental impression at a doctor's office, bite marks are found on materials like skin, clothing, and soft tissue. So human skin is elastic, so it swells, it heals, and it can deform or warp a bite mark so that it doesn't align properly with what the person's teeth actually look like. So if you want to learn more about this, check out the California Innocence Project, which is linked in our show notes. So Isles believes that Ray killed Melissa. Rizzoli doesn't buy it and still thinks that Patty Doyle is responsible. Another detective found a wireless receiver in the box of evidence from Melissa's car, meaning that Melissa was backing up everything that she was recording wirelessly. They were able to watch her footage and find out that she was following Ray, but Ray was meeting someone, and they zoom in and adjust the audio to see who he was meeting with, and it was Sutton, the CFO of the company that we met earlier. Sutton and Ray see Melissa recording and chase after her, meaning that Sutton and Ray are the ones that killed her. Doyle killed Ray out of revenge for trying to frame him, and Isle says that they better get to Sutton before Doyle does the same thing to Sutton. They rush over to his office and find him alive but beaten up. They arrest Sutton and see Doyle escaping in his car outside. Doyle later calls Rizzoli directly on her cell phone. He says that back when he ran the docks, he didn't kill women or hurt good, hardworking men like Richie. He tells her to check the DNA of the blood alcohol test that they had done on Richie. He tells her to take care of his daughter, and Isle says she can take care of herself. Right on. We also see that he leaves a lot of money to Melissa's sister and her father. And that is the end of the episode. There was a lot that happened in this episode of Rizzoli and Isles. The ice pick to the heart, the mob and the docks definitely had to be inspired or based on something. So for this week's true crime, we're going to be discussing the murder of Pete Panto, who was an Italian-American longshoreman and union activist. In 1934, Panto was 24 years old, and he was working at the docks in Brooklyn. Every day, thousands of longshoremen would stand in bad weather and wait to unload copper or coffee from ships that came to the dock. It was dangerous work, sometimes resulting in extensive injury or even death. The International Longshoremen Association claimed to represent dock workers, but there seemed to be little benefit to being a union member. According to a labor historian, William Mello, it was a mob-infiltrated hierarchy, and if you complained about the conditions, you didn't get to work, or worse. After a few years of working in the piers, Pete Panto was made the hiring foreman in 1939. Having had first-hand experience with the corrupt system as a longshoreman, Panto rallied 2,000 workers in Brooklyn that spring. After one of Panto's meetings, the vice president of the dock workers' union took him aside to tell him that the union boss, Mr. Anastasia, was upset with all of the trouble he was causing. Panto was offered $10,000 to stand down, but he refused. On Friday, July 14, 1939, Panto left work to see his fiancée, Alice Mafia. That's so funny that her last name is Mafia. 
I thought the same thing. And and now her name is Alice. Hey, it's me. Actually, I don't want to think about this being me. It's sad. But <laughs> I thought it was very funny that her last name was Mafia as well. How ironic. So they went on a date that night, and he had plans to go to the beach the next day. However, Panto did not meet Alice for their beach date the next day, and she immediately knew something was wrong. Witnesses say they saw Panto on Friday night getting into a dark sedan, some claiming that union agents were in the car. 18 months after his disappearance, Panto's body was found in a shallow quicklime pit on a chicken farm near the Passaic River. He had been strangled and stabbed and wrapped in a canvas bag. He was identified by a gap in his teeth. Back then, families often held wakes of past loved ones in their own home. However, it is most likely that Panto's family also feared to do so because, as it appeared, he was a target of a mob hit. They didn't want to do that and be hits themselves. Yeah, I think that's assumed. I don't think it was, like, definitive that they said that, but... I think that's what people assumed. I would safely assume that as well. Yeah, I think that is a safe assumption to be fearful. Hundreds of dock workers joined Panto's funeral procession, many of them seeing Panto as a hero. His body was buried in a cemetery on Long Island with the plot paid for by money collected from the dock workers. His grave was left unmarked, possibly so the mob wouldn't take his body. However, in the spring of 2022, a man named Joseph Sciorra, who was a scholar of Italian-American culture who helps run the Calandra Institute at the City University of New York, raised money through the GoFundMe to get a stone for Panto's grave. The epitaph reads, Drop hooks all you longshoremen, this Panto burial day, this working man from off the docks, our martyr in the fray. Unlike in Rosalian Isles, no one was arrested or charged for the murder of Pete Panto. And we got all this information from a New York Times article titled, Where is Pete Panto? by Helene Stepinski. That, it's such a, I'm surprised I haven't heard about this case until like now. 2022, that's pretty recent for them to do something. Yeah, it's pretty recent that I really like that, yeah, I really like that they were able to get him an epitaph and... I also was thinking, so $10,000 is a lot of money now, and I should have looked into this, but like back in the 1930s, that had to be so much money that he was offered to stand down, and he didn't. That's insane. That probably was over like 100000 back then. I, I'm, I'm going to look this up eventually and figure it out, because <laughs> it it's so much money now, like to me at least, that's a lot of money. I'd have a hard time saying no to it, but he said no to it in the 1930s when it probably could have bought him 700 houses right but he believed in the union and getting representation for the workers there yeah and i think the similarities between this case and the episode of resorlian isles are very evident with it being like someone who was trying to change the union had an accident or like went missing and the involvement of possibly the mob and just someone trying to do right even the teeth identification like they used dental work to identify him and there was dental work involved in this episode so i feel like it was probably loosely inspired if not based on yeah for sure so to end this episode we tallied a total of three green flags and six red flags so in our opinion this episode of rosolian isles does not pass in terms of forensic accuracy although it was still fun to watch if you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us about anything you want to talk about. 
We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye.